Readers Entertainment Radio presents Book Lights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Book Lights, where we're shining a light on good books. Good morning, everyone. It's March. Can you believe it? Anyway, (laughs) it is March. Hopefully it's turning into spring wherever you are and warming up. I'm glad that you guys are here today because we're going to keep you on the edge of your seat talking thrillers today with author Elliot Parker. If you haven't read his books before, you're in for a treat. And I'm going to go ahead and read his bio here so you can get to know him. Elliot Parker is the author of four novels, most recently A Knife's Edge, which was honorable mention in the thriller writing at the London Book Festival. And the sequel is the award-winning novel Fragile Brilliance. His novel Code for Murder was named the 2018 finalist for genre fiction by the American Book Fest. He's the recipient of the West Virginia Literary Merit Award, and Fragile Brilliance was a finalist for the Southern Book Prize in thriller writing. He recently received the Thriller Writing Award by the National Association of Book Editors for his novels, so you guys know he knows what he's talking about. Elliot is also the host of a podcast program, Now Appalachia, which profiles authors and publishers living and writing in the Appalachian region and is heard on Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network, and Blog Talk Radio. A graduate of the Bluegrass Writers Studio at Eastern Kentucky University with his MFA in Creative Writing at Murray State University and his doctorate in English. He teaches English at University of Mississippi and lives in Oxford, Mississippi. He is the proud pet parent of two loving and spoiled cats, Layla and Buddy, and enjoys sports, traveling, reading, and movies when he's not writing. I did put a link to Elliot's website right there on the Blog Talk site, so you can click that anytime and get to know him better. I believe he also has a newsletter you can sign up for there. So be sure to do that if you're listening live or listening later. And I don't want to delay any longer. Elliot, are you there? I'm here, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me, and great to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, For those who are weekly listeners, we tried to have Elliot on earlier, and Mississippi decided to have a giant storm and took out all his electricity and power. So we're very excited that you made it here today. No storms today, right? Right. No no storms today. It's it's a little overcast, but... 58 degrees, and uh, everything is good. Life is good. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Well, your most recent book that was out is a thriller called A Final Call. Do you want to tell people about that and why they should run out and grab a copy now? Oh, sure. Um, A Final Call is a sequel to uh, a book that you mentioned a moment ago, Code for Murder. And the book features a a female homicide detective uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, named Stacey Tabbitt. And uh, the, a final call begins um, uh, a few months after everything happens at the conclusion of Code for Murder. And just to step back to Code for Murder for just a second, uh, the, the investigation in that book is uh, Stacy is trying to find out who killed a Cleveland Browns football player. Uh, in the process of oh. that, uh, her brother goes missing uh, during the investigation. And so we pick up everything in a final call a few months later. Her brother is still missing. Uh, she's still trying to recover, uh, you know, emotionally and, and physically from everything that happened to her uh, in Code for Murder. She was investigating uh, who killed Devin Baker, the Cleveland Browns football player. And so she's trying to uh, recover from that. She's trying to find out what happened to her brother Chance, uh, where he is, and why he might be missing. 
And while all this is going on, uh, a former college classmate of hers named Monica DeVito approaches Stacy and asks her to help her find her missing son, Colton, who has um, who is from Cleveland. He took a job working uh, outside of Houston, Texas. And uh, Monica is not able to get in contact with him, and she's afraid that something bad has happened to him. And at first, Stacy's like, you know, I don't really want – I don't have time for this right now. I've got so many other things going on. And uh, when she listens to what Monica has to say about her son and where he is and, and why he's gone missing, Stacy just kind of at first thinks, well, you know, this is just kind of a young man who uh, doesn't really want to talk to his mom and dad for whatever reason. You know, he's just being a, he's just being a 20-something-year-old, you know, but um, – what ends up happening is the as Stacy agrees to look into it, and then Colton becomes the suspect in a murder investigation there in Cleveland. And so Stacy has to figure out: is he really missing, or is he here and just trying to hide from his mom? And what is he up to? And did he commit this murder? And um, as the investigation unfolds, Stacy finds out that uh, Colton's in all kinds of trouble. Uh, he's been running with a bad crowd, uh, and and this bad crowd he's been running with. Uh, have some pretty lethal intentions for him and and uh, everyone involved in his life. And so Stacy's got her plate uh, certainly full uh, in this story as she tries to figure out, you know, where is Colton? Is he alive? Is he alive? Where is he? And who are these people that uh, he's gotten himself entangled with? Uh, and, uh, you know, and trying to deal with that and, again, kind of uh, take care of herself emotionally and physically, but also try to find out what happened to her son, uh, Chance, or her brother, Chance, uh, and there's also um, sort of an underthread of some police corruption going on within the Cleveland Police Department, which impacts everything that Stacy is doing. So a lot going on, a lot of uh, things that uh, she's involved in, and uh, she's certainly under a lot of stress and a lot of pressure uh, in the book. So she's a police detective, not a private eye? That's right, yeah. She's a homicide investigator. Okay. That's right, yes. Oh, Okay. That sounds very intriguing with many storylines. So I got to ask, um, do you, are you a big-time plotter? Do you plot these all out, or do the twists and turns come to you as you're writing? You know, that's a great question, Lisa. I, I am not, I'm a little bit of a plotter. Uh, I'm certainly not a pantser. I, I'm not someone that uh, can just sit down and write a story like this uh, just sort of off the, off the cuff and, and have it, I think, come out well. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not I'm not a James Patterson type of plotter, right. which uh, mm-hmm. I, I talk about this a lot. You know, if, if you know anything about James Patterson or if you've read about him, and I know a lot of people, I know a lot of your listeners are fans of his books and uh, and everything. But anyway, he when he sits down to write a book, he does these very detailed 12, 13, 15-page outlines where he has everything down in meticulous detail. For example, he knows – in chapter 13, the color of a shirt, the color shirt that a character is going to wear, or he's going to know he mm-hmm. writes down what uh, the character is going to be having for lunch in chapter 18. I mean, all the way down to those minute details. <laughs> I don't go to that extreme, you know, when I'm writing because just thinking me, of that gives me I, hives. <laughs> yes, it does me too. Yes, absolutely, and I just feel like that I am so wet. I would be so wedded to that outline and so. Um, trying to check off boxes on that outline and make sure that I have everything there, that it just doesn't give me the freedom, I feel like for myself, gives me the freedom to sometimes let characters and plots kind of go their own way. Um, so I do. Yeah. I do have a rough outline. I know, I know how the book's going to end. I, I know how Stacy, uh, in a final call, how she's going to find Colton and how she's going to find out who 
committed the murder and, 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 and who and how Colton is involved in all of this. I have that already determined. And then I just kind of work backwards from that. I think, okay, we're going to get to this ending. How are we going to get there? And we know where the book's going to begin, which is a few months after everything that happened to Stacy and Code for Murder. So how do we get from that beginning to that ending and what's going to happen in between? So that's kind of the, the, the basic framework or outline that, that I work with. But if I use those really detailed multi-page outlines, I, I feel like in some ways I'm solving like an algebra equation and I'm so focused on, you know, making sure the X carries right. over and that the remainder is put in the right place, et cetera, et cetera, that I, I – I, you know, it just restricts my creativity, and it doesn't make writing as fun. So that's kind of how I, right. how I handle it. Yeah, for me, then, if I know too much about the book, it turns into a term paper, and I have no impulsion to get back to the keyboard. You know, it it just it sucks all the fun out because, for me, the fun is what's going to happen next, you know, so you have to get back to the keyboard. And if there's too much planned out, then it's like, well, there's no fun. It's already written, you know. <laughs> Right. Absolutely. Exactly. So can you tell us, um, our listeners are always super interested in the writing journey, and it sounds like for you, you have a lot of different degrees. You've you've always wanted to be a writer, it sounds like, but how did you get around to finally becoming published, and how, how did that all come about for you? Was that always the plan, and this teaching was the fallback, or, you know, what came first? <laughs> Well, that, that's a great question. I, I, my, I, I was a journalism major at Marshall University uh, in Huntington, West Virginia, so I had desires and aspirations to be on ESPN someday um, and of course oh. that, or CBS or, or be the next Jim Nance or the next Al Michaels or whomever, but uh, that didn't work out, which in a way I think is a good thing. But, you know, all of this got started. <laughs> I was really fortunate growing up, Lisa, you know, that 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 you know, my mom was a big reader, um, and we had books in the house all the time, even books in the bathroom. Uh, so <laughs> she was a big reader. She read to me. My dad read to me. Both sets of grandparents read to me. Um, so reading and books and language and all of that has had been something that had been instilled in me, you know, uh, uh, as a young child. And so I, I loved I loved hearing stories. I loved reading stories. I I, I was a big reader growing up. It was. One of the few subjects in school I actually liked was English, you know, because we got to read and write about all these <laughs> great books and all these things that we read. Um, but but I, I did not get something published until um, uh, my junior year of, of college at Marshall. Um, I had a friend named Zach who was an English major, and he was trying to start a creative writing club at Marshall. And uh, he convinced me to join the club, and I said, you know, look, I, at that time I was a journalism major. I said, I'm not a creative writer. Right. I'm a journalism major. He said, I don't care. I just need someone to show up and keep the chair warm so that we can get a charter from the school to be an official club. And I said, fair enough. I'll show up and keep the chair warm and not be a pain in the neck. <laughs> and so that, that's kind of how that started. So my senior year, our last year there, we all agreed. There was probably 10 or 12 of us in the group. We all agreed uh, that we would work on something, and we would send it out by the end of that year, you know, the spring of that year. Of course, this is back before the submittable and all these, you know, there was no submittable or Electronic, you know, you had to get to get the self self addressed stamped envelopes and the big, you know, the big right. uh, the, the big Manila envelopes and send all this stuff in. And so I had written a ghost a little ghost story that we that we had workshopped and I had revised over the course of the year. And uh, there was a, a journal, a literary journal called Spec, uh, which is run by Mary Washington College. Again, I think they're Mary Washington University uh, in Virginia. And that was the first time I had ever had something creative published. 
and uh, a creative piece published. And that was the first time I ever thought, oh, wow, somebody actually wants to read something that I have written uh, creatively. <laughs> and so then from, so then from there, I, I wrote some more short stories, uh, got enrolled in the uh, MFA program at Eastern Kentucky University, uh, worked on my craft, and then I took a uh, novel writing uh, class as part of my program of study. And so we looked at we, – we studied novel genres, and we studied – uh, you know, what is a novel? How do you structure a novel? What makes a novel good? What makes a novel fall apart? All of those things. And then, um, so I've written some more short stories and, and had some more things published. And then I, I sat down and started to tackle uh, novels. And that's where Fragile Brilliance and A Knife's Edge and Code for Murder and um, A Final Call came from, came out of that experience. And so that's really where the journey kind of started for me. But um, I realized having that one short story published by Mary Washington College, that was when the writing bug bit me, and that's when I really yes. not only not only enjoyed it, but really you know became, developed a passion for it, and uh, it, right. it's kind of been that way ever since. So yeah, that's where it kind of all started for me. Oh, I love that. And for the readers out there who are listening, um, a little behind the curtain for writers is that it's kind of a symbiotic relationship with readers and writers, and it really is an amazing feeling when somebody else reads your words and creates a character in their head. You know, I feel like, um, uh, I think it was a Le Guin quote about the uh the char- the book doesn't really come to life until a reader brings the characters to life and it it does bite you and you want to do it again and again and you know make this this your words come to life in someone else's head it's really pretty cool it's a good feeling <laughs> it sure is absolutely and a ton of fun and i always feel like too and i know you Definitely. feel this way as a writer too lisa <laughs> if you can't have fun with it uh, it's not worth doing because you spend so much time by yourself and so much time, you yes. know, kind of in your own head and in your own space uh, that if it's not fun and you don't enjoy it, uh, it it's not worth doing because it, it can be a very it can be a very lonely sort of solitary experience if you don't enjoy it. Definitely, and you have to definitely write something that you want to read because you're going to read it 50 million times before it finally goes out. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> Uh, so you mentioned A Knife's Edge just a minute ago, and I think that's a different series, right? Do you want to tell people about those books? Sure, yeah. Uh, that, that series um, features a, uh, a male uh, detective, um, uh, A Knife's Edge, and, and the prequel to that, Fragile Brilliance, um, uh, a male police detective named Ronan McCulloch, who um, is working for the Charleston, West Virginia Police Department, where I'm from and where I grew up. And so um, – he is, uh, you know, uh, a, a different character than Stacey Tabbitt where um, – and I, I get this question a lot. You know, what's the difference between these two characters? You have these two detectives uh, that are kind of put in these terrible circumstances, and they have these terrible crimes that they have to solve. I would say the biggest difference between Ronan and Stacy is Stacy is more collaborative. Stacy is willing to, to trust and work with, uh, you know, the people, you know, her colleagues, uh, the people in the prosecutor's office. Uh, she trusts them and believes them and, and, and believes that they have the best interests at heart in terms of bringing criminals to justice, and that's what makes sort of the, the police corruption in a final call so devastating for Stacey's because everything she kind of has, has upheld and believed in gets sort of turned upside down. Ronan is not that way. Ronan is very much uh, you know go against the grain, 
take things on his own, not wait for sort of the uh, the bureaucracy of the profession to kind of work its way through. Um, he's very much sort of a gut instinct kind of guy. If if he senses something's not right, or he senses, you know, he's got something that needs to be investigated or a lead that needs to be chased down, he just does it. Doesn't always collaborate with his colleagues and and, and yeah. with the you know sort of the the order side of law and order. And um, and that gets him into a lot of trouble. It, it makes him a great character, but it also gets him in a lot of trouble. Um, he's also gay, and uh, the 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 one challenge he has running through a knife's edge and also fragile brilliance is he's involved in a relationship uh, with another character named Ty Andino, who is a, an, uh, an emergency room nurse uh, at the hospital in Charleston. And what makes this so interesting is that is the, 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 the hospital where Ty works is the trauma one hospital in Charleston. So everybody that gets involved in, you know, car crashes, fires, gunshots, uh, or shootouts or whatever, uh, and as a suspect that has to be treated, gets brought to uh, the emergency room where Ty works. And so Ronan's personal and professional life with Ty is always overlapping. And uh, uh-huh. uh, that's a sort of another thread that kind of runs through the story. And, and Ronan is fiercely uh, a protective of Ty, but also fiercely afraid that his secret is going to be uh, disclosed uh, and that he will be treated differently uh, on the police department if other people know he's gay or that he's going to be kicked off the force entirely. And he's got some evidence for that based on some previous experiences that he's witnessed as a police officer. So you've got that thread running through not only the, 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 the murder investigations that he solves in, in those two books, but also the fact that he's you know, trying to maintain a relationship with Ty, uh, keep him safe and keep him from getting involved in everything, but also preserve their relationship. And so uh, it, it's a different kind of story in that regard. Stacy doesn't have that going on in, in her universe as much as Ronan does, but you get a little bit more of a, of a romantic uh, romance kind of uh, subplot that works in uh, A Knife's Edge and Fragile Brilliance that maybe is not there in uh, Stacy's Stacey's books. Okay. What what draws you to keep writing um, police detectives? Um, are you do you have family in the police department, or what what draws you to you know that kind of story? I, I had I had an uncle, um, uh, an uncle by marriage who who's no longer my uncle by marriage anymore. He and my aunt are divorced, but um, he works for the um, the Violent Crimes Task Force uh, in Atlanta. Or used to. I, okay. I think he's reti- retired now. But uh, you know, he he was the guy. You know, he worked on the force that uh, you know came and knocked down doors at three o'clock in the morning and went after the very worst of the very worst criminals in Atlanta uh, and surrounding areas. So I had a little bit of background there, although he didn't talk much about you know his cases or what he did. Uh, just that line of work has always fascinated me. Um, I've had an opportunity through writing these books, Lisa, to talk to a number of people in law enforcement, detectives, officers, state troopers, highway patrolmen, attorneys, prosecutors, district attorneys, you name it. And and I'm just fascinated by the line of work. I'm fascinated by what these people see and what these people deal with on a daily basis that most of us could not or would not want to handle. Um, and I'm fascinated in that in that dimension that that exists in their psyche between these awful things that they have to see and witness, and these awful people they have to deal with, but then the human side of their life. That you know, the, these people are husbands, these people are boyfriends, these people have have families, they have children, they have uh, lives outside of this work, and, and the 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 
sort of gray area that's really small between the personal life and the professional life and how that bleeds over. Um, I'm just fascinated by that. And, and talking to a lot of folks in law enforcement, I can tell there's people that handle it better uh, than others. Um, <laughs> I think right. you're increasingly seeing, yeah, you're, you're increasingly seeing the profession become a younger profession because um, I, I had one uh, detective tell me, he said, you know, um, I'm getting close to my 20 years, and when my 20 years are in, I'm, I'm leaving, of course, not because I don't love the work and not because I, I don't believe what the work, that the work I do is important, but he said, you know, I've missed a lot of parties. I've missed a lot of holidays. I've missed a lot of right. kids growing up. I've missed a lot of things because, you know, I'm getting called out at 3 a.m., and I'm, I'm on these investigations that require my full attention for two or three or four weeks or longer. And so I'm just fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by that, you know, the, just the terrible things that these people have to do and see and witness uh, and how committed they are to finding justice for victims, um, and and but also the, how they're able to, in some case, some more successfully than others, keep their private life out of their professional life. And so that you see a lot of that both in the Ronan McAuliffe books and also the Stacey Tabbitt books is that you know um, neither one of them in different ways handle that that gray area that exists between their personal and professional lives very well. Uh, it affects them differently. Right. They respond to it differently. But I'm just fascinated at that. I'm just fascinated at that that whole dichotomy that exists and how these people can do it. Um, and it just makes when you're writing fiction, it just makes some for some great character development. Really helps you write, uh, you know, very 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 round, rich characters. And it gives your audience and your readership, I think, uh, characters they can get behind and root for because they can put themselves in that circumstance of, of not only the, the, the job but also trying to have that, that family life and that personal life that uh, completes them in some way. So that's what keeps me writing. I, I'm interested in exploring that in every book with, with, with Ronan and Stacy is, is, is you know, how that changes, how that dichotomy between the personal and professional changes and gets blurred and, and how they respond to it. Okay. Um, are there any other genres that you've secretly been dreaming about writing or you have an idea or is thrillers really where your heart is? You know, I, I love thrillers. I've been toying with the idea of a romance, um, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I want it to be sort of a, a sweet and syrupy romance or a Romeo and Juliet kind of romance. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, 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 I'm afraid that if I do the Romeo and Juliet romance, it's just going to end up being a, a thriller with, you know, uh, people who right. are lovers as victims and, and that kind of thing. Right. Um, but then again, I, I don't have a whole lot of experience writing more of the more of the sweet syrupy kind of romances. So I, 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 I'm kicking around a couple of ideas, and 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 I'm I'm someone as a writer too, Lisa, that I, I like to challenge myself, and I try to do something in every book that I didn't do in the book before, uh, either the plot or create a, a new character or you know ratchet up the intensity differently than I did before, and so. That would be a challenge. That certainly would be a challenge for me. That would really uh, kind of force me to flex my writing chops a little bit, you know, to step into sort of the uh, more traditional romance. Uh, so I don't know if I'm going to get there, if I'm actually ever going to do that. But I have moments where I, you know, I think about it a little bit, and it kind of ruminates you in my mind idea. a little while. So yes, right. I have this idea. <laughs> so so I don't know if I'll ever follow through with it, but I do think about it from time to time. Yeah, well, I I have all of my published books have all been paranormal romances, but I have this 
thriller horror book that I finished years ago. And anyway, this year when I was plotting out my publishing schedule, I was like, you know, I'm going to put Perfect out in the world this year. And I wanted it to be a trilogy, so I'm going to write the next two books for that too. But but it has been exciting and also terrifying that, <laughs> that I have this new thing coming out. But it has been thrilling writing-wise to, you know, flex that muscle because you get to be scary in paranormal romances, but um, this is different. And uh, so anyway, a- as a writer, I think you should go for it because it, it feels really good to do something different. <laughs> Yeah, it it does. It does. It just it. I don't know. I think it keeps it interesting for us as writers. I think it keeps it fresh. I think it keeps. Yeah. Uh, it challenges us. You know, it makes us think differently about different things, and 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 I like that. I think that I, I like doing something. You know, with our writing that makes things not so not get stale and not get kind of the same old same old. So I may have to I may have to take that idea and kind of move ahead with it. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Oh, yay. All right. Well, when you get it done, you have to come back and tell us all about it. (laughs) I will. Promise. You you got it. (laughs) Okay. So I wanted to touch on the podcast that you have, and um, is that about writing or what, you know, do you want to tell people about it so they go listen? Sure, yeah. It's called Now Appalachia. You can get it on – Really, any podcast format that you like to listen to, you know, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes, SoundCloud, Anchor FM, wherever you like to get your podcasts. Um, and it's a 30-minute podcast, and we interview or I interview authors uh, with connections to the Appalachian region. Either they're from Appalachia or they are uh, you know, writing about Appalachia or they have some connection that went to school in Appalachia, um, something like that. Um, and, and so, oh, um, um, so I interview those authors, and uh, we talk about not only how Appalachia and the region sort of influences and impacts their work, uh, but also kind of about their their writing process. You know, their 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 um, you know inspiration, who influences them, uh, all of those types of things. And um, you know, when we talk about Appalachia. Uh, one of the things that, that we also talk about is the culture in the region. And, and, you know, it's made up of, when you think about Appalachia, it's made up of 423 counties. There's 13 states that fall into the Appalachian region, all the way from southern New York to northern Mississippi, where I am now. Uh, and it, I did it not includes, know that. Wow. You know, yeah, yes, it includes, uh, includes southern Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, uh, uh, southwestern Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, a little bit of uh, northwestern Georgia, uh, Arkansas, South Carolina. There's so many different states that are accompanying uh, in that. It's about 206,000 square miles uh, that wow. sort of typically fall under the Appalachian region. So, you know, if you think about the if you think about the great writers and the great books that have come out within the last so well, just in the last 10 years, um, so many of them come from Appalachia or have connections to Appalachia. So many of the books themselves or the authors themselves have those connections, and so. That's what we try to do on the podcast is spotlight those authors and, and books and, and publishers and also try to shine a light on a region of the country that oftentimes gets negatively portrayed in the media and has a lot of negative stereotypes surrounding it. Um, you know, I tell my students all the time when we're talking about stereotypes. I said, you know, there, there, there are kernels of truth to stereotypes or they wouldn't exist. 
So, you know, right. uh, yes, there are, there are trailers in, in Appalachia. Yes, you'll find people that live in, in, in trailer neighborhoods. Uh, yes, there are people whose teeth aren't necessarily as good as you think. <laughs> or, yes, there are people that live in neighborhoods where they run around, you know, with no shoes and socks on. I mean, we have that. Um, but our, but our region, you know, and that's what the national media typically portrays when they talk about Appalachia. But right. Our region is so much more. Our region is so much more, uh, especially in the literary arts. We, we just got some just amazing writers doing amazing work and winning national and international awards for their work. And so that's one of the things I want to also shine on the, on the podcast as well is that we've got some really great things happening in Appalachia and we're not all the stereotypes that uh, people are led to believe. And so uh, it's been a lot of fun. We're now on our fourth year of doing uh, interviews. And uh, so we bring a lot of um, multi-genre authors on. We've had poets and screenwriters and, uh, romance authors and science fiction and nonfiction and uh, historians and just kind of everything in between. So it's it's been a lot of fun. Wow. I really enjoy it. And, I, and, and if folks are uh, interested, I hope they'll check it out. I, I'm pleased to say that since the show started in 2018, we have been the top ranked or the second ranked uh, or in terms of listeners uh, listen to podcasts on the authors on their global radio network. So we I've heard from people. Wow. Uh, in, 15 different countries around the world that have listened to uh, the podcast. So um, I'm so pleased. You know, I started doing this four years ago, had no idea if anybody would listen, if anybody would even care. Um, and so, so I, I, that makes me – and it's not, it's not anything that I'm doing, but I think, uh, you know, th- that ranking in terms of the, the listenership just shows that we've got some great work coming out of Appalachia. Um, and we have some, some really great writers that are not only doing great work, but they're good spokespeople for the region. And that's connecting with people. That's resonating with listeners. And so that, that's something I'm really proud of as well. That's neat. I have to ask because one of my favorite podcasts is Old Gods of Appalachia, which is like a horror fiction podcast. Have you ever listened? I have, yes, yes, I have, and, and they, those folks do a great job over there as well. They really, they, do. they really do. High production value. <laughs> yes, ab- absolutely. Uh, yes, and, and I know that they, I, I know that I, I either read this or heard this that when they started doing that podcast, they they really wanted it to be a high quality, uh, a, a thing, a high quality experience. They wanted it to to be just as worthy of any podcast you'd hear from NPR or you know, CNN yeah, or Fox News or wherever, you know, they, they wanted that level of quality. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really good. Well, we're rapidly running out of time. So I just wanted to um, ask you where people can get in touch with you after they read a final call and they're super excited. Should they go through your website? Are you on social media? How can they find you? Uh, I'm on social media, um, um, probably more than I should be, but uh, I, I just can't help myself. <laughs> it's such a great way to, you know, to meet readers and connect and with people. Yeah, party. connect with people. Absolutely. So I'm on Facebook. Uh, I have a personal page and an author page. If you just look up Elliot Parker, you'll you'll see me. I think I'm only one of three Elliot Parkers that are on Facebook. So um, you, you'll see me. Um, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is e4419. I'm also on Instagram, just my name, Elliot.Parker. My website, uh, as you mentioned earlier, is ElliotParker.com, E-L-I-O-T-P-A-R-K-E-R.com. There you can find out information (coughs) about all my books, um, my bio, uh, reviews, and and media appearances. And also I have a contact box. 
So if folks want to reach out to me that way, uh, that contact box goes right to Thanks my for joining us on Bookline. Be sure to connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers.